In this episode, we're cutting through the BS and giving you the real story behind investment drivers. Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy a workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. We cannot believe that spruikers can still get away with promising how you can make quick money, massive profits, retire at 30 through property. And it makes us sick to our stomachs when we hear people talking about the next hotspot. We are cutting through, you know, Megan called it, but yes, I'm going to call it what it is, bullshit today. And we're going to give it to you straight. These are the investment drivers that you should be focusing on when you're looking at as a first home buyer, rent vesting or buying any investment property, really. But before we get into that, uh, we have a special house that Megan's sitting in front of. Um, for you watching on video, you're not we're talking about. And today's is a rather interesting one. It this what is, is it? This is fascinating. <laughs> so this is in a residential area. It is the igloo. And you can actually see, if you can see each side of me, there are normal, small, everyday brick houses each side of this home. And it is the one house in the street. Can you imagine being a neighbour to the igloo and saying, oh, yeah, we live beside the igloo? That's how you'll find us when you deliver our parcels. <laughs> you wouldn't actually need to have an address. You just go, it's the igloo. I'm Everyone on the left of the it. igloo. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming it's not made out of ice. <laughs> you just, I oh know, it looks exactly like an igloo. It's a colour of does, an igloo. Um, and I've got to wonder. There not must very practical, I'd wonder. Windows in there somewhere, like it's, mm. yeah. Yeah, not my cup of tea, anyway, but interesting. Like really difficult to furnish a room with curved walls. I do too. Mm. I do too. And uh, look, one of my staff, she has a real problem with anything that's not symmetrical, any <laughs> curved walls, any diagonal walls. I think this would absolutely centre over the edge. So I shan't be showing her. <laughs> right. So we would not necessarily recommend if you're looking to find an investment that you actually look at buying an igloo. But it has one of the things that can help drive prices up, and that's scarcity, but it's the wrong <laughs> type of scarcity, I'm Is afraid. Good scarcity and bad scarcity. So <laughs> what we want to do today, though, is really take you through um, the, some of the elements that we look for in a location. 
when we're looking to invest because, you know, there is well, 300 LGAs or something in, in Australia. I don't even know. There's thousands of suburbs in Australia. Mm-hmm. And how on earth does anybody who's thinking about investing, where do they start? Where do you start? And that's what we want to sort of talk about today is some of the, the macro level. Yeah. yeah we're not talking picture. about the individual houses here. We're talking about that real macro level. Where, where, where are some of the areas that are outside your backyard? Mm. You know, because buying an investment property shouldn't be about something that you can drive past and see and keep an eye on. I think that's one of the things that people can be a little bit misled with is, you know, it's bricks and mortar. I want to see it. I want to touch it. I want to know that it exists. I want to know that the lawn's mown. Um, no, you, you don't need those things. You need a really good property manager to look over after those sorts of things for you and, and um, finding a good property manager they should do that job and you shouldn't have to worry about um, whether the lawn's mown or, you know, how the tenants are keeping the property. So at this very... I'm about to say there's a whole topic for another podcast is how to choose a good property manager. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. let's add that to the list. (laughs) Let's put it on. All right. (laughs) Add it. Now, from from my point of view, and we we specialise in Brisbane, and we know that that's our sandpit that we play, and we know that backyard intimately. We know it really, really well. I could never profess to know the Gold Coast to that level, or parts of Sydney. And there are so many different parts of Sydney. But mm. at a macro level, we've, we've spent a lot of time as buyers agents with our research team looking at which suburbs are worth looking at and investing in and which ones aren't. There's 189 mainland suburbs in Brisbane and each each has been researched and looked at for a number of different factors and we actually only buy in 58 and we only buy certain property types in each of those 58 suburbs and only in certain price ranges. Mm. And, And that's, I guess, what we're trying to help you get your head around today is don't just look in your own backyard it may be a really good place to invest and we will we will talk about that you know being you probably are an expert in your own area if you've been researching for a long time um but at a, at a macro level what are some of the sorts of things Veronica that people should be looking at when they start to look outside their own fence before I sort of hit that, I just want to say that, you know, when we sort of stalk Facebook groups and various other sort of um, you know <laughs> message boards where you get people posting questions one of the most common questions and we know it is where to buy which is why we came up with the original where to buy workshop because some good Mm -hmm. news for you keep listening because we've got a where to buy investor edition coming up but here's the thing though that it is so commonly asked. And when you look at the whole of Australia, if you sort of think, okay, well, I don't need to buy my own backyard. Mm. And you look at the whole of Australia, how do you start filtering through this stuff? And so you do have to start macro, as, as me, uh, Megan was saying there. So what do we do? To start with, I think a really good place to start with is looking at socioeconomics. And really what we're doing there, we're looking at areas where you've got good incomes, you've got a high proportion of people that are owner-occupier that want Mm. to and can and want to buy property in that area. You're looking at diverse employment opportunities, so not just individual companies that might employ but in diverse industries as well Mm. because Mm. one of the really big traps is is buying in an area with only one source of income. One industry Um, and and examples of that are, say, Casino in northern New South Wales where there is an abattoir and that's the main employer of people. It's a a small town 
Um, and if there is any hiccup in that industry, then there's going to be a large percentage of people who are unemployed. Uh, mining towns are a classic. There are so many people who were attracted to mining towns in Queensland during the mining boom because there was such a lack of accommodation for the workers that needed to be housed in those areas. People were paying outrageous money for what are called dongers. It's actually officially type, a type of housing, <laughs> if you can believe it. Isn't it a shed? Um, pretty much, <laughs> yeah. It's a shed, but it's called a donger. Mm. Um, so, so these, so they were paying extraordinary amounts of money because um, the mining companies were prepared to pay large rental um, payments at the time to get their people housed there. Now, when there was a downturn in that industry, their need for that housing evaporated very, very quickly and people were left with a lot of negative equity. So so when Veronica talks about single um, uh, business, you know, businesses or areas that only have a small number of employers or don't have a diverse economic base, that's what we're talking about. So those sorts of areas, um, if there isn't some other industries and some other areas that people are employed in, then um, if there's any sort of hiccup in that industry or with that employer, you could actually end up with an exodus of people from the area or people unable to pay rent mm-hmm. um, or have to sell their houses and then you have a glut of properties available for sale, which pushes prices down. Also, one of the fundamentals of, of a good location is a place where people want to live for lifestyle reasons, not just because they work there. And mm. so it's a combination of the above, you know, like they don't want long commutes and they want to make sure that they, you know, they've got quality of life by not basically being in trans in transit for too long every day. But also that what they have around them, the amenity that they have around them are the sort of things that they want to enjoy. You know, it could be that there's beaches, it could be that there's, you know, lots of parks, or it could be that there's bushwalks, or it could be that there's land areas or that yeah. yeah, there's there's lots of um different types of areas that fall into this category for different demographics, right? Which sort of leads up to our next Topic. So, mm. you know, so understanding those economic drivers and also the socioeconomic makeup of, of the actual incomes and the um, of the actual predominantly the people that live in the area. And, and so we'll get to demographics in a sec. It's very, very important because what a lot of investment sort of spruikers and experts will talk about will be about the incomes in the area. And they'll say, oh, that doesn't matter because it's about the incomes of the people buying in the area that matters. Now, if all the people buying in the area are investors and they've got high incomes because they live elsewhere, then that doesn't count. It's yeah. the people in living in the area that need to have good incomes because they're the ones that actually can afford to buy because they want to live there as opposed to they can't afford to buy. when we talk about good incomes, Veronica, we're not, we're not talking about high incomes. We're talking about incomes relative to the price of housing in the mm. area. Absolutely. So, so there are certain areas where a good income may be a lot lower than the Australian average because houses are a bit lower, but you want to make sure that there is enough people there who are going to drive prices up either through renovation or demand or increasing in, in population. Um, so those are the sorts of things. What, Veronica, there's a lot of places that you can get this information. Mm. Um, there's a few that we really like. Um, Australian Bureau of Statistics, so the ABS, has a lot of this information. Um, Digital Financial Analytics does quite a lot of research into demographics, mortgage stress, um, those sorts of factors. And you can get that at a suburb postcode level, which is really important. You don't want to be just looking at a region. You want to actually looking at, be looking right, dig right down into that suburb postcode level when you're still doing your macroeconomic research. So what we, we, 
Do you have a free a download, a free download of free information sources that we did in episode? Do we remember what episode number? We always do this. We start thinking, oh, that's right. We've already done part of this. <laughs> um, right. Episode something. Um, <laughs> I'm looking for it. You keep talking. I'll keep talking. So we, we've actually got, and we'll put the, di- the link in the show notes for episode this episode 34. as well. Episode 34, go back because that's all about free information sources. And a lot of this will feed into what we did on that episode and the download you can get from that episode, which allows you to know where to go to get a lot of this information, right? Mm. Now, so that goes hand in hand. And we'll also have another download for this episode, which is a list of all these important factors, these these investment drivers. So those two downloads go hand in hand. Now, you can also, as I said, drum roll, because we will be announcing a work of a live investor where to buy workshop um, coming up and we'll tell you more details as we continue with this podcast. So we we really want to help you be able to work through this process and get clear on where these opportunities are, you know, where the good places for you to be investing are. And so leading on, as I mentioned, demographics. So this, we're talking about the type of people that live in an area, the, you know, the lifestyle that they want, the affluence, the community, family structures, the age, all those sorts of things, you know, like a lot of people might forget to look at age demographics, for instance, and then inadvertently buy in an area where it's all full of retirees and they're not actually earning much because they're retired. And and nor do they, are they going to perhaps want to rent in in those areas? So Mm. you've got to have a look at that mix between owner-occupiers and renters and and, and get the right balance. You know, we, we talk a lot about you want an area where there are predominantly owner-occupiers, but you have to have enough of a rental pool to fill the supply of rental properties that are available in an area. And, and largely retirees are probably on the balance going to be owner-occupiers. Um, so if there's not a good rental pool of, of potential tenants, then you might find vacancy or decreasing rents. And, you know, what's so interesting about looking at the mix of owner-occupiers and renters is that there's this rule of thumb that's commonly, you know, thought about in or talked about in property circles, which is the 70-30 rule. 70% owner-occupier, 30% investor. Now, it's nice in theory because if you look at actually the total makeup of property ownership in Australia, it's roughly in that proportion. You know, 70, 30. Mm. So it's like it's logical to go, oh, well, that makes sense. If I want to go and buy an area where it's all very balanced, that's great. Weirdly enough, though, the most highly performing suburbs in Sydney for capital growth, um, and that is, and, and this is over the last 30 years, you know, this is Peninsula where Potts Point, Rushcutters Bay, Elizabeth Bay, those sorts of areas. It, it absolutely breaks the mould when you think of all the stereotypes and the myths around property. One, don't buy apartments, yet predominantly that area is full of apartments. There's very few houses. Two, only buy where there's at least 70% owner-occupier. Well, something like six, in excess of 60% of the properties are actually owned by investors. And mm-hmm. yet over 30 years, we talk about the long game here, that has actually had experienced the best capital growth in Sydney. So... Here's a lesson in every rule has an exception in property. So you have to do your research. (laughs) Exactly. No, we're talking macro here. We're not talking Mm. micro. So Veronica's talking very micro there. Um, and that's important to do, but at the moment we're just at that really high level looking across the country at at how you determine what kind of area you might start to focus in on. And I'm going in for the jugular with 
that point because the 70-30 rule is often applied in areas of new subdivision and new development. And we're going to say it doesn't matter how much research you do, do not be thinking that a new subdivision or a new development is the right place for you to invest. Mm. So mm. that's sort of mm. I'm jumping way ahead here, but um, I just, I don't know, I was on a bit of a tangent and I just kept <laughs> running with it. So let's go and back to your passion comes through strongly <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Promise the workshop is more structured than this episode. <laughs> well, this, I mean, this is the whole idea of the podcast, Veronica, isn't it? It's the sharing of information so that people be- can become aware of what the options are out there. It's it's not the step-by-step structured course that we've created, your first home buyer guide. It is it is really about free information that people can access to, to then be able to go, oh, you know, maybe I maybe I need to do a little bit more work in this area. Because often, and, and this is a, I guess one of the premises, is you don't know what you don't know, and you only really know what someone else has told you or what you can Google on the internet or what you've read in books. Mm. And if that doesn't apply to you uniquely, then it's the wrong advice for you and it could take you in a really bad direction and and completely steer you off track and and lead you to a disaster that's full of risk. So I think that the whole idea of this podcast is to give people the ability to say, well, I actually didn't know that. I need to find out more about that and actually research reliable independent sources and apply that information to you uniquely in your situation. And we do encourage people to do a lot of navel gazing, um, particularly when it comes to the where to buy question, because the where to buy question is not something that anyone else should tell you because you need to know a lot about yourself and where you are in your part in your, your life cycle, um, your stage, where, you know, your income, your trajectory, all these sorts of things are unique to you. And anyone telling you that you should buy in Potts Point because the prices have risen so dramatically in 30 years <laughs> knows nothing about whether that's going to suit you or not. And also whether it will continue to do so because while history is a great indicator for what might happen in the future, it isn't a solid prediction and it, it's not always things change. And so it mm-hmm. is important to understand a lot of these, these macro drivers so that you can actually then start to apply that critical thinking to any claim that is made by anybody actually including us. Yeah. Test us too, you know, <laughs> yeah, test absolutely. us. Um, some of the other things that aligned with the demographics and and the socioeconomic makeup of an area, uh, you, you spoke very briefly there about um, DFA, which is Martin North's um, mm. digital financial uh, business. Yeah, he, he talks a lot about unemployment rate and mortgage mm-hmm. stress. And I think these mm. are really important things to look at absolutely. in an area when mm. you're considering investing there because of, obviously if a high proportion of people there are under mortgage stress, there's potentially... Uh, going to always be a high amount of property, like distressed sales. sales. Yeah, mm. distressed sales and tend distressed to do- sales aren't a bar- bargain. No, I think, I think one of the things we need one. to be really clear <laughs> about here is mortgage stress in an area that has no mortgage stress or very limited mortgage stress may present an opportunity if it is a good quality property. Mm. But buying from somebody who's under duress in and of itself does not represent a bargain. The property still has to be good quality in a good quality area. And you um, might and feel sorry for them, but that's not the reason to buy, bail them out. No, no, <laughs> it's not. And and a bargain, well, if you perceive something to be bought under market value and therefore in your mind a bargain, but it's still it's the wrong property, then long-term it is going to do you such a disservice and it is going to, to either 
cost you in opportunity cost. That is, you could have done better in something that was a better quality asset uh, or cost you in real costs if, in fact, it continues to go backwards instead of going forwards. Let, let's actually just hit that for a minute because there's quite a lot of, um, you know, there's you, you'll hear Spruikers talking about this sort of idea of buying under market value and experts mm. and I'll, I'll rabbit ears around experts. And let's have a little, just a very, very basic economics one-on-one um, message here is that if you've got a good amount of demand in an area, no property or very rarely, very rarely, I did actually buy something under market value the other week, but that is so rare and it's fabulous when it happens. It's so rare. Sometimes and it was- it's the conditions that, that the owners need that actually help to get a lower price across the line, whether it's they need a longer settlement or they need a rent back or sometimes the conditions actually mean more to an owner than the price. In and this that's partic- where and under. Yeah. yeah. And in this particular instance, let me tell you, I was just a little quite diversion here, but the reason I got to buy under market value in a hot market is purely because of a number of factors. One, the agent communicated with one of my team that their owner at a property that just passed in at auction, the owner was desperate to sell and hadn't communicated this to the agent until that moment. So what had happened was that there had been others in this complex as a townhouse, others had sold for 200000 more than we paid mm. for this particular property um, very recently. And so it was a popular um, complex? Yes. And it had, had some been scarcity? Absolutely. There mm-hmm. really good things going for it, but they'd overquoted it. And see, this is the problem. Anyway, this is a bit of another issue. But so they overquote. Sometimes campaigns get mismanaged or there's something goes wrong in the campaign. It's nothing to do with the property. It's to do with actually how the message that they communicated to buyers. Though, And they really couldn't do much else because of those two other sales, to be quite mm, frank. Mm. But so, and, and also the owner had not communicated to the owner until it had passed in that their predicament. And so that's when we stepped in and we got to buy that property for the same price that one had sold four months earlier in the same complex. And since then, two had sold 200000 more than we paid. Mm. So every now and then, if you're in the right place, right time, getting the right information and you know what you're doing, you mm. can act on that. But most of the time, a property that's sold under market value, well, market value is determined by a market forces and that is supply and demand. If there's enough demand for one of these properties, it can't sell for less than market value because another buyer will pay more. And in a free market, that's the way economics works, you know. So when anyone's saying you've got to buy under market value, yeah, it's all well and good in theory, but in practice, if you're buying under market value, rabbit ears around that again, you're typically buying a property that's not a very good asset and there's no real competition for it. You're actually not buying it under market value. You're actually buying it for market value. And you bought a, you bought a dog, and and it goes back to one of our home buyer academy principles, and that is if it's uh, easy to buy, it's going to be difficult to sell. Mm. So easy to buy being even in a, a difficult um, or a seller's market where there are far more buyers than there are sellers. If it's easy to buy a property and you can buy it cheap, when you go to sell it, it's probably going to be very hard to buy because there won't be many people competing for it. So it it. It still, it always has to come down to the individual property, not necessarily don't buy just because the, you know, we get people contacting us and saying, I only want you to find properties where the seller is in, in distress <laughs> because I want a bargain. 
we will never take those buyers on because it is all about choosing the right asset. They'll end up mm. with a dog, they'll end up with a lemon, and they'll end up regretting the decision to purchase regardless of what price they paid. That's exactly right. And so working through some rates. Yes, vacancy rates. Now, vacancy rates are are, are measured and and, um, there are different data houses that come out with vacancy rates. But in essence, it's it's how many properties are available for rent compared to the pool of properties that are, sorry, vacant at, at a time compared to the pool of properties that are available for rent in a certain area. And sometimes um, the data houses will group suburbs together. Sometimes they'll do it by postcode. There's a few different methodologies as how to how they come up with a vacancy rate. In Queensland, the REIQ um, gathers information from individual property management um, companies. So every quarter, I think it is, um, we're asked to submit our statistics on how many properties you've got vacant, how many have you got on your rent roll. So it's not an exact science. It's it's an indicative kind of um, uh, way of saying how many properties are vacant versus how many are available um, at any, you know, if, if they're all available at one point in time. I think an easier way, it's it's a good indicator, it's a good lead indicator, but when you get down to um, actually starting to choose between suburbs, the best thing to do is to jump on the portals and have a look at how many of a similar type property are available. And this is what we do when we look at rentability, um, which is one of the seven, we have 36 investment fundamentals in, <laughs> in seven categories, and one of them is, is rentability and also supply. So supply is the number of, if you've got a three-bedroom, one bathroom with a single garage house on um, a piece of land and it's in fair condition, then you want to have a look at how many others are available for rent at that point in time. There have been times where, um, let's pick a suburb, Stafford, which is an affordable um, sort of suburb compared to others. There are times where there might be 30, 35 properties that are very similar available for rent at one time. That's a high vacancy rate compared Mm. to the number of properties that are available uh, or exist in that suburb. But there are other times where you might have a look and there's only 10. So that's actually quite low. So you can have a little bit of a look by, by doing your own research at, at what, what availability there is of similar properties. And you might find if you're looking at a four-bedroom or a five-bedroom home that there aren't many of those um, and it could be a good property, but then you want to compare that to de- the demographics and say, well, are there enough larger families that would be in that suburb that would want to rent at that kind of level and how far above the average would it be to ask people to pay, you know, if if the average is $300 a week for a three-bedroom house and you've got an $800 a week property, you're going to attract people to that suburb that might otherwise want a more prestige suburb um, and, and compromise and have a smaller house. There's lots of little intricacies in there, but at a macro level, vacancy rates are a really good indicator as to how how popular it is for renters, but also how much supply there is. And Megan's right that every state has a different way of tallying it. There's this um, we've included in um, that download with free data sources, a source for vacancy rates. But certainly if you look at state by state and because the methodology might might differ slightly, mm. therefore you can't sort of compare, uh, you know, Brisbane suburb vacancy rate, say, to a Sydney suburb vacancy rate because it's actually calculated differently. Mm. Um, but you certainly can compare Sydney suburbs with each other and Brisbane suburbs with each other, for instance. So it's important to understand, I guess, where the, where the information comes from the other other information is really useful is to look at and i mentioned before about pots point you know you look at history as a bit of a predictor for the future 
I like to look at the the past growth rates or past price data in graph form. And I like to look mm. at the shape of that graph because if it's wobbly all over the place, I think there's peaks and there's troughs and so things go up and then they go down. Or it might be that there's just not enough stock in there um, in that area that it's unreliable because there's a real diversity sales. of stock. Mm. Yeah. So, so I, but I do like to look at those patterns um, and I also like to look at the proportion that's sold at a loss, and that's really important too. And that's where the uh, you know my favourite report, the CoreLogic's Pain and Gain report, um, is very useful. At um, you know for fine, and that's not free, by the way. It's fifty bucks a quarter. It's worth it, I think, to educate yourself as to risks, where are the mo- most risky areas, mm-hmm. and also the most risky types of property. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, there's some some definite things to look at: vacancies rates and sales history. And and sales history is you know again when you start to dig down at a at a at a um, getting more into a micro level, it can be affected by a number of things, not just actual um, organic price growth. It can be that areas are gentrifying. So there are a number of suburbs that I, you know off the top of my head I can think of sort of three where they experienced a, a massive increase in the number of people going in doing large-scale renovations and then selling. So that has Mm. actually pushed the median house price up significantly. What you're doing then is bringing in a higher income demographic who are, um, I guess, investing more money both in their homes and potentially investment properties. So you want to make sure that the median house price um, is increasing both organically and because there are other drivers that are um, leading to that gentrification is a really, really good thing to see because it's Mm. changing the nature of the suburb. And if you can buy, you know, an entry-level house in an area that's gentrifying very quickly where there's lots of big renovations happening and houses are being changed and improved substantially, then that is a great way to actually experience some some strong capital growth in a shorter period of time. Um, But you want to make sure that there just hasn't been a couple of really high-end sales. and, And I can think of um, suburbs that are perhaps riverfront. So there might be a limited number of riverfront houses, but if you have three, four, five of those sell in a quarter, then the median house price in that area is going to skyrocket mm. versus if there's none or one, that won't skew the figures as much. So it's really important to have a look at the the makeup, um, if you like, or the spread of prices. And, and the graph that Veronica talked about where you're looking longitudinally at the at, at the um, the cycles, you can also look at the spread of prices in graph form as well. Um, and that's a really good, it will tell you if there's been a significant change in the number of houses. You know, if, if every, the majority of us are selling between 500 and 800,000, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you've got some outliers of, of six or seven at two million, you might have some skewed figures there. But if the yeah. whole thing is is shifting to the right in terms of price range, that graph is shifting to the right over time, um, then you might be that might be a suburb that is worth looking further into. And this is something we'll show you how to do in the in the Where to Buy Workshop Investor Edition as well. You know, actually show you how to use these free sources of information online to actually get in there and look at market segmentation and, and understand, ah, now I get it. Mm-hmm. If I look at buying, you know, for $800,000 in this suburb, it's got a really small buyer pool compared to, say, the $600,000 price bracket for argument's mm-hmm. sake. Different suburbs will have different patterns. And yeah. it's quite easy. You, you'll absolutely, you'll get it. The minute you see it, you go, Oh, right. Now I get it. Um, 
rather than sort of us trying to sort of talk about it on a podcast, a visual thing in a verbal <laughs> manner. But uh, it is actually really easy to, to to actually then go, right, now I know what I need to look for when I go uh, searching for this stuff. Do you know, when I was a sales agent in Balmain in Sydney, and Balmain is a peninsula and it's very close to the city mm. and it's, sur- it's almost surrounded by water, three sides on water because it's a peninsula, right? And so you do have waterfront homes and some of them actually have gum barrel views of Sydney Harbour. It's pretty amazing right and then you also have workers cottages tiny little there's not many left that are one bedroom but like little tiny skinny little tiny terraces tiny little workers cottages and I remember one year in the my first couple of years in real estate so I started in 2001 was it 2000 can't remember now 2000, I think I started. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so long ago. I forgot my year. A couple of decades and ago. It boomed. You know, the peak of the boom, that boom, was September 2003. So in that period of time, prices were going gangbusters. But there was one year, I do remember, there was very few waterfront sales. Mm-hmm. And I remember having this conversation with a woman. You know, I was trying to sell a property, a small house, one of the small houses, and she's and which were going gangbusters. These things were just flying out the door. People just yeah. love them. And yeah. she's saying, well, I'm sorry, but I just looked at some data, said that Balmain property prices have come off the boil by 20% and I'm not going to pay that price. And I've gone, what? Where? There? And we're just before, data. Before <laughs> I knew what I'm, I know now. And, you know, I was like, hey, that doesn't make sense. And I started that sort of my inquisitive nature. It started looking at it going, oh, my God, there were hardly any waterfront sold that year. Uh. And I rang it back and I said, you've got to understand that if, if you base the whole thing on the waterfronts, of course you're going to think prices are falling. But the reality is that the property you're looking at buying, if that sold six months ago, you would have paid X amount less than you're going to have to pay today. And, yeah. and in six months' time, if things keep happening, you're going to have to pay X percent more. So, so she was basing her entire assessment on a suburb based on really faulty, faulty information or a faulty understanding of understanding of it. Yeah, the yes. information yeah. was obviously accurate Fine. according to the methodology, yeah. but it's actually digging in and understanding the methodology and the makeup of the, the sales within that data exactly. that will give you an awful lot more information. Absolutely. So evidence of change. You're talking about infrastructure there. It's so important. You want to see the evidence because when suburbs are being gentrified, as Balmain had been, it's actually a long process. People seem Mm. to think that it happens overnight, but it actually is there's often there's there's a long period of time it could be a decade or more even where the first person started renovating and then it slowly slowly builds up and it sort of gets to sort of critical point where then all of a sudden it takes off now obviously if you can time your purchase at a point just before it takes off fantastic but it's a very very difficult thing to get absolutely 100% right so you certainly want to be seeing plenty of evidence of gentrification before Mm. you hope that you're you're lucky you're stepping into a suburb that's about to take off mm. absolutely development um pipeline is is a really important one veronica so at that macro level you want to be looking at you know are there big greenfield sites that could be turned into large um uh subdivisions yeah and are there even rezoning is there some rezoning mm. that has happened that might actually lead to higher density so large-scale complexes um, that may bring more supply into the area. Now, if you're buying a house, you may think that won't affect you, you know, development of that kind of nature, but it actually will because it changes the number of people who are coming and going in an area, traffic and and commutes, and it it actually does have an impact on house prices too. I was just actually reading some research just yesterday on this, and in fact, 
unless you're within sort of the 300 metres of these big new complexes, you can actually do fine by having new development come into the area because it brings amenity. And so when you've got this population mm-hmm. that supports amenity, you know, so actually it can be a good thing as long as you're not too close to it. But the problem is it, with zoning changes, there's a one-off hike to prices. So when, say you've got a whole row of really crappy old houses and if they were going to sell to individual people to buy them and knock them down and rebuild or maybe to renovate, there's a certain cap that, you know, that they're going to sell for, right? A certain price they're going to sell for. But Mm. if the council changes the zoning and says, right, you can now build four dwellings on that one lot that you previously got only to build one dwelling on, the value of the land goes up a lot, Mm. And it goes up once at that point of rezoning is when that land goes up in value in such great amount, right? Now, when you're looking at property data, and this is, I've seen this misuse. You're talking about sort of not interpreting the data correctly. I've Mm. seen spruikers misuse this data. They're spruiking a new apartment or a new house and land package in some of these areas where the rezoning has resulted in a massive hike in land value. (laughs) They go, look at what prices have been doing in this area, and they're not wrong. Because it's the rezoning that resulted in the price hike, not the organic growth of properties in that area. Mm. So understanding data, understanding what's really beneath it and what caused those price movements is so critical to making good decisions. Yeah, it's a good point. Actually, going back to your your point about being within, was it 300 metres of these developments can be mm. good. We often talk no, about no, no, buying. be outside the 300 metre outside, zone. Yeah, we often yeah. talk about buying in the neighbouring suburb. Mm. So there was some rezoning of specific areas a number of years ago in, in Brisbane and they were, uh, I guess, turned into transit-oriented developments or or higher density areas. Now, around some of the larger shopping centres that had good transit hubs, so there was a lot of land rezoned around them for higher density development. So, of course, those areas had huge increases in, in prices as those pieces of land were sold to developers. Those higher density suburbs aren't necessarily the ones that that are on our investment matrix that we will purchase in, but it is the neighbouring suburbs who can benefit from the improved in- infrastructure, mm. you know, the good shopping facilities, the employment opportunities, all of those things that come without the negative um, aspect of having more supply, um, they can often be a really good one to look at and then investigate more intensely as to, to how far, you know, those sorts of facilities are and will they benefit which is why, so this is a double-edged sword. You know, we talk about beware of the development pipeline, however, mm. depending on how close you're buying to it and Can what you take you're advantage buying. of it? Exactly. And so the other thing too around infrastructure is that so many people, oh, I've got to buy with this new hospital being built or new airport being built or new road being built or new train station being built or whatever. And there's a danger around this because the governments love to announce things. <laughs> they don't Without having build- funded them. <laughs> yeah, they don't always build what they get, what they, they haven't checked with the federal government if they're going to get the funding. <laughs> or the federal government's announced it because they want to win an election or whatever. So, so you do have to be very careful to be sort of jumping on a bandwagon around infrastructure. And once mm. again, those property marketers and spruikers, they will be out there going, oh, you know, there's a new airport going in. That's Or, or <laughs> how about the Olympics for Brisbane? The Olympics. So obviously, obviously prices are going to go up because there's an Olympics for two weeks, one year, and a few. You know, anyway. So, so just be very. Be I critical. think there's some some pretty exciting infrastructure projects that are actually going to be around that that are going to be very good for price growth, but you can have to be very very careful in your selection there. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's a bit being critical and, and not just swallowing every pill hole that you're given. Yeah. Um, so there's land component. Now, this is a big thing. It's certainly where you're, where when you invest, you mm. very much look at the land component, don't you? Very much so, yeah. So we have minimum criteria. Uh, so that the land component is the rateable value or the site value that's determined by the value of general's department. Um, it isn't the market value of the land. That's a different number and that's determined by the market itself. But the rateable value is, is the component of land um, and, and the percentage that we um, attribute to the purchase price, if you like. So yield, income, rent, that's one part. Growth, capital appreciation, um, one of those aspects for potential is the percentage of land um, that is the rateable component or the site value of the land. And, and, you know, we have seen that slip back recently with the increase in market value on properties. The rateable land or the site value has not increased yet. They haven't actually released the 2021 figures yet. So we don't know what the new site values are. So that has slipped back, to, back a little bit. Um, but, you know, we, we, we certainly work to a, a, a minimum percentage of um, depending on the suburb and depending on the house, but it would be at least at least 50, 55%. A lot of our investors focus more on the 70% as land component because they don't need the rental income as much to service the debt. And that leads to the next thing that is an investment driver. Now, I think it's over rated in many cases and that is mm-hmm. yield or mm-hmm. rental income and that is where people say oh i just want the rent to cover the mortgage and like you mentioned there um people pay rent it's very complicated we do we could do an entire episode just on yield but it's a dangerous it's important because it provides cash flow but it, it's dangerous because it can be a red herring it can encourage people to buy a property that's high yielding i.e gives you a high proportion of rent to the purchase mm. price mm. but you can get stuck with a property that doesn't necessarily really go up much in value Mm. and so you're never going to get rich on extra 50 bucks a week rent no but you will get rich if your property grows in value because that's compounding right so there's this magic oh it's beautiful the magic of compounding um but once again that's an entire podcast in itself but we will dig into that more in the where to buy investor edition workshop because this is a really really important consideration and it's a dangerous one because it's so tempting to go for that extra income to think it's not costing you anything Mm. but in reality it's costing you your future in many cases and and how many times do you hear a property spruker say look for the for the for less than a cup of coffee per (laughs) day you can get into an investment property i mean that is that just mm. screams red flags to me um, because they're probably focusing on yield and not really focusing on capital growth. Capital growth mm. matters. Now, another thing to really be aware of, um, and these are short-term drivers, right, we're talking about here is current market conditions, you mm. know, because you've got to de- sort of determine what's happening in the market at whatever time you're looking to buy. And it's not to say you only buy in a flat market or you only buy in a down market. Sometimes you will be buying in a hot, in a hot market. You um, buy but, when you can afford to buy. And when you're ready. Yeah. That's exactly right. And when you find a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and and, and I, I think, Veronica, you, the pathway that you're going down, I'll just quickly pick up on it, is um, it doesn't matter when you buy, it's understanding where you are in the cycle so that yeah. you're not pushing yourself price-wise in a falling market. You understand which direction that market is going. 
and you're not under pitching yourself in a rising market and constantly missing out and therefore missing out on capital growth. So understanding where you are in the market cycle is important, not deciding whether to buy or whether not to buy, depending on what the market cycle is actually doing. That's exactly right. And and this is Yes, it's a wild ride, isn't it? There's so much to navigate, so much to think about. We haven't even talked about, you know, supply versus demand metrics, you know, days on market, clearance rates, inventory Mm. levels. These are really, really important things. And once you sort of got those those bigger picture that we've been talking about, we've been going macro, micro, macro, micro all this episode. (laughs) Well, micro (laughs) gives context, whereas we're talking (laughs) macro in terms of choosing an area to to then go micro in. Yeah, because you do. Once you've actually, this is the beginning understanding where the area or choosing which areas you're going to be looking at investing in that is just step one and we've just spent a lot of time talking about honestly top level stuff we haven't even really got into the nitty-gritty of it so property selection is the other essential component but if you are if you've ever asked that question you know because you're thinking about investing where should i buy then i would highly encourage you to come along to our live workshop we are doing it on a wednesday night the 24th of november this year 2021 7 till 9 p.m. AEDT, that's Australian Daylight, Eastern, daylight time. time, so basically yep. Sydney, Melbourne time, yep. um, 6 till 8 if it's Brizzy, right? Spot on. You guys go to bed earlier. <laughs> well, the cows <laughs> need to know when to, when to get up and milk. <laughs> Poor things. I can't remember the arguments. It's so long ago. It's just insane. <laughs> So, so yeah, we would encourage you to join us. The the cost for the live workshop is $99, right? You can, you can also send your, your questions in in advance and, um, and we really, you may not ask the question, where should I buy an investment property? That is not, (laughs) you are not going to get the answer in the workshop. You are going to get the process and the way, the structured way to work out, to think through, to work out what is the right area for you and then the right way to go about choosing where to buy. So do not come to this workshop if you think we're going to tell you to buy in X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Definitely not going to happen. <laughs> and if you've listened to any of our podcasts in the past, you will know that that is not us. We are not giving you top tens of anything. <laughs> or hotspots. We are not giving you hotspots. <laughs> No top ten. Absolutely not. (laughs) Top ten mistakes you can make. We'll give you that. Not because we don't want to share with you. That's a long way from the truth. The the fact is that a hotspot is generally going to have a peak in activity and then it's going to either plateau or decrease once it's no longer hot. So that that's why we we talk about not giving hot. It's we're not trying to um, keep anything from you. That's no, we are lifting up that we've got the lid of the toolbox open and we are sharing with you a whole heap of stuff. It's invaluable stuff. This is the benefit of our combined now over 40 years of Mm. property experience. And because we're old enough to be your mothers, although we do have a lot of people that are members of um, your first home buy guide that are definitely not old enough to be our our kids. They're actually too old to be our kids, but. There's a number that are our age too. They're they're almost starting over again, and and mm. um, and that's really great to to go. All right, well, you know, this is where, wherever you are, that's where you start. And it doesn't matter that you didn't start last year or ten years ago or fifteen years ago. Where you are now is where you start. And start if you start today. well, you will progress. Exactly right. So we're here to help and we would love to see you at our next Where to Buy workshop, Wednesday, 24th of November, and we will have the link in the show notes. Be there or be square. 
In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.